Welcome to the Rhodes Church Podcast. We are so excited to connect with you. We hope that this podcast builds your faith and that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. Start reading in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Are you ready? All right. I'll wait for the rest of you. Are you ready? All right. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, what is the day of Christ? That's the day that Jesus returns with his holy angels to appear in the sky and receive us back. He's coming or gathering together to him. He talked about it earlier in verse 1. The day of Christ had come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, again, the day of Christ, will not come unless the falling away comes first and, 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 and the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. That again, the man of sin, son of perdition, we're talking about the Antichrist, that is called God and is worshipped above all that is called God and is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, important to note, showing himself that he is God. Here's what the Antichrist is going to do. The Bible's talking about this in the end times, that he's going to exalt himself above all that is called God and all that's worshipped, and he's going to sit as God in the temple of God. He can't sit in the temple of God unless there is a temple of God. So the temple of God is going to have to be rebuilt before he can sit in the temple. That's a marker to watch for when the temple is rebuilt in Israel that needs to be ding, ding, ding. Pay attention, Chad said something about that. Actually, Paul said something about that before I did. Let's give the credit where credit's due. Actually, the Holy Spirit told Paul. Let's, how far back do we want to go? Seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. So anyway, look at this. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's a lot we can talk about there. If you want to know more about that, when he sits as, as he is God, it's Mark chapter 13, Daniel chapter 11, and Matthew chapter 24. But here's what I want to look at. It says, let no one deceive you by any means. I want to jump into this today and try and reiterate some things in the time that we have remaining. What's going on in our country and our world, I've tried to emphasize this. I've tried to do a good job of giving disclaimers, but evidently those disclaimers are falling on deaf ears at times because what's happening in our country and around the world is not, is not a Republican versus Democrat. It is not conservative versus liberal. It is not. It is good versus evil. The root of what's going on in the world, what we need to grasp, we need to understand at the root level, at the, at the most important level, is good versus evil. It's Christ versus antichrist. It's kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. That's the root of it. That's where everything is going to boil down to. Is it, those, those are the things that we're measuring by. Our core value here at the Rhodes Church is we're building his kingdom. It's bigger than us. There's a difference between the kingdom of God and then church as we know it. Church as we know it is one thing. The kingdom is different. That's why we've been talking about it for 13 weeks. But who's counting? The kingdom of God is Christ-centric. Church 
many times has been made self-centric. Yeah. What I mean by that is, too many times we make church about us, what we prefer, what we like. The kingdom is about Jesus. Drop the mic. Church, we can be able to, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that song. I don't like that carpet. I don't like these chairs. Why is it so hot in here? Why is it so cold? I've got a jacket on. We get self-centric. Kingdom is Christ-centric. And the reason I'm bringing that back to our remembrance is because I want you to understand that we are in a spiritual battle. Not a physical battle, not a political battle, but... This is important for us to understand. To think that a spiritual battle will not play out through physical cooperation is naive. Well, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's right. We don't fight against flesh and blood. But that doesn't mean flesh and blood will not cooperate with the agenda of the enemy. And this is what God's trying to tell us is that we are fighting a spiritual battle, but it will play out in the physical realm. It's not being political, it's just saying this is how it's going to play out. So I want the church to be prepared for this as much as I can uh, communicate that. Uh, I want to say it this way, there is no, uh, sometimes we get this idea that I just wish this would all go away. All this virus stuff, all this mass stuff, all this whatever stuff, all of it just label. I want it all just to go away. I want to encourage you with this. <laughs> there is no going back to normal. That ship has sailed. There is a new normal in the world. And it's time for the Christians to embrace it because we are made for this time. Not like, oh, no, it's never going back. We don't want to go back to normal. I'm not saying we want chaos and we want tragedy and we want death and all that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the Bible is getting ready to be played out right in front of our eyes and we have to embrace it. We're going to go through it either way. We can either embrace our assignment in it or we can cry about it. We can either go suck our thumb in the corner or we can say, wait a minute, this is what Jesus says in the Word of God and I'm going to be prepared for it. Nothing against people that suck thumbs. I'm just saying. (laughs) So, here's what I want to say. It says, let no one deceive you. There is coming a deceiver on the earth, the likes of which have never been seen before in all of history. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, there will be a level of deception. The Bible says it will deceive many. There's going to be a level of deception that we cannot uh, take for granted our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the Word. We have to be students of the Word. We have to be aware of the Word or we can be deceived. The Bible says that he will deceive even the very elect. So now, am I trying to discourage you with these facts and make you scared? No, I'm trying to prepare you for that. So now let's look at it. How are we going to be prepared for the Antichrist in Chad? How am I going to know? Well, one thing we can do as Christians is we can go back to the Bible And stop just coming, listening to sermons and going home, and that is your Bible study. I don't mean that to be harsh. I just mean that to be honest. Because you're not supposed to follow me. You're supposed to follow the Word of God. 
Every single one of them. Maybe for years we got by with, well, let's just come and listen to what the preacher has to say and preach me a nice good sermon, then I'll go on about my day. That day is long gone. You've got to have a personal revelation of the Word of God, and this is what we need in this hour. So uh, how are we going to know? Again, I'll say this. Stop expecting. The, the, the news is not going to come on one day and say, hey, I'd like to make a break. breaking news today. We have located the Antichrist. <laughs> the news, the world is not looking for the Antichrist. So the problem with, with us, in, in, even in the church world, Christian world, we're too dependent on the mass media to tell us how to feel. We're too dependent on whichever news network that you like or which, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, you cannot get your, your, uh, your green light for peace today or joy today depending on what I hear from the news. Nor can I wait on the news to tell me when things are going to happen in the Bible because they're trying to get rid of the Bible and we're trying to live by the Bible. So let's take a look. Go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Are you ready? Let's jump into Revelation a little bit. Let's get into it a little bit. Get your, get your hip waders on. This is not going to be for the shallow of thought. Revelation 13, verse 1. Let me say this before I read it. A reminder that the Bible that you're holding is a compilation of 66 Jewish books. Jewish. Jewish. It is Jerusalem-centric. It is Israel-centric. It is Middle Eastern-centric. When we're reading the Bible, it's important for us to understand things about the Bible. That we, we too many times have an American or Western view of the Bible. And we forget the Bible was written by Middle Eastern people. Not by New Yorkers. Not by people from Chicago. Not from people in L.A. It was written by Middle Easters. Jesus was not American. Much to the disappointment of some people. He was a Jew. He was a Jew. So when we think about the Bible, there are no direct prophetic scriptures centered around the United States in the end times. I'm not trying to burst any bubbles, just trying to let you know, there are no prophetic end time scriptures centered around the United States of America. End time prophetic scripture is based on either Israel itself or a nation's relationship with Israel. Again, if we're going to understand end times, we got to get context. The context is, if think of a bullseye. Think of a bullseye. The very center is Jerusalem. Boom. Little bit out, next circle, Israel. Little bit further out, next circle, Middle East. Next circle out, rest of the world. So when prophetic scripture is shot at the bullseye, it's shooting at Jerusalem and at Israel. Why does that matter? Because again, in the West, we like to make everything about us. So let's look at this. How do we interpret this book? Look at Revelation chapter 13. Everybody with me so far? All right, it says, this is written by John, the apostle John. This was one of the 12 disciples, John. And uh, he was the one that was at the cross 
when Jesus died with his mother, and he said, John, behold your mother, and Mary, behold your son. That's that John. And he's on the Isle of Patmos, just off the coast of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and he's writing this. He has this revelation. Verse 1, then I, John, stood on the sand. Where is he standing? On sand. Where do we stand on sand? Usually on the beach, right? On the sand of the sea. What sea is he talking about? Well, he's in the Isle of Patmos, off the coast of Turkey. The sea is the Mediterranean Sea. With me? Putting ourselves in the scripture. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Okay. How many, how many others that when you start reading Revelation and you hear about beasts and seven heads and ten horns, you're like, Lord, take me back to Psalms. <laughs> right? That's the way I used to be. I'm not talking about when I wasn't saved. That's when I was a Christian. I'm like, I, I start reading this, I'm like, seven heads, ten horns. Psalm 23. Thank you, Lord. Let me go back to that. Can I find some scripture that makes sense for me? Because I didn't understand it. I'm still not saying that I understand everything, but I'm going to give you how I'm interpreting it. So when you talk about how do we interpret scripture, people are like, okay, Chad, when you study Revelation, how do we know what these things mean? How do we know what beasts are and heads and horns? Here's what you do in scripture. Here's a good theology 101. If you're trying to understand scripture, use scripture to interpret scripture whenever possible. So when the Bible says that he saw a beast rising out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns. Hold your finger there and go to Daniel chapter 7. What is a beast, A, and what are seven heads, B, and what are ten horns, C? So let's use the Bible to interpret the Bible. When he says that, hey, I saw this beast coming out of the sea and he had seven heads, ten horns. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7. And start in verse 2. Daniel was written in 553 B.C. Revelation was written about 95 A.D. So it's like 650 years before Revelation, before John saw the beast with the seven heads and ten horns, Daniel had this vision 650 years earlier. Are you ready? Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Which great sea is that? That's the Mediterranean Sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. Sound familiar? This is four beasts. John just saw one beast. Each different from the other. First was like a lion, had eagle's wings, blah, 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 verse 5. Suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, raised up on one side, three ribs in his mouth between his teeth. That sounds weird. Verse 6, there was another like a leopard, had his back four wings, and beast had four heads. <laughs> a leopard with four wings and four heads. That's crazy. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. Now we could talk about what all those beasts meant, but... That's not why I'm here in Daniel 7, and it takes everything that I have not to talk about it, so let's don't talk about it. But here's all I'm grabbing out of Daniel chapter 7 to relate us back to Daniel chapter 13. What is a beast? Now look in verse 16, Daniel 7, verse 16. I came near to one of those who stood by, this is an angel standing by, and I asked him the truth of all this. In other words, what does this vision mean? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. The Bible's interpreting the Bible. 
Verse 17, those great beasts, we don't have to guess because this big angel dude's getting ready to tell me, those great beasts which are four are for what? They're for kings which arise out of the earth. So he's telling Daniel that there's going to be four kings or you could say kingdoms that are going to rise out of the earth, beasts or kingdoms. God reveals this to Daniel. There are going to be four powerful kingdoms that come up on the earth. One of them, even in verse 7, he says it's dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. And as I was reading this, I felt like what God wanted me to do today and one of the assignments that I have today is to remind us in the midst of difficult times and facing adversity in our life that God's wanting the body of Christ to be prepared for it. What did he do to Daniel? He said, hey, Daniel. Four kingdoms are going to come on the earth. In 553 B.C., he's saying pretty soon these kingdoms are going to come up. And they were, and he, he gives the kingdoms, and we could go into that, that it was actually talking about Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greek was the three that he was talking about there. And the fourth one's going to be the Roman Empire, but we're not talking about that right now. So anyway, he said these kingdoms are going to come on the earth. He said the fourth one's going to be dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Was Jesus Speaking through the angel here, was he holding back any information or was he just giving it to Daniel? He was just giving it to him. It's going to be dreadful and terrible. Thank you, angel, for the interpretation. But I want you to see something. He told him, he said, hey, Daniel, this is coming. This is coming. But look at verse 18. Hey, this is coming. Four kings are coming. Mm Mm-mm. Verse 18, what's the first word in verse 18? But, four kings are going to rise out of the earth. But, 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 why am I saying that? Because God is saying, whatever I just told you is not a lie. But what I'm getting ready to tell you supersedes the thing I just told you. It doesn't negate that it's not going to happen. It just tells you what to focus on. I'm telling you, four kings are coming, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. (laughs) Now notice what it says. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. That word receive means to acquire or to take over. If you take over, that means somebody else had to have it in the first place. The saints will of the Most High will take over and they will possess. The word possess means to take possession of or to occupy. So we have to understand the importance of the kingdom theology that enforcing victory is triumphing over opposition. This is what I want to emphasize. God is saying, hey, four kings are going to rise up. It's going to be pretty bad. But the saints of the Most High will overcome and possess the land. So Daniel, I'm showing you everything and you can decide what you focus on, but I recommend you focus on 18 instead of 17. Because the saints of the Most High will face four terrible kingdoms, but they will possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So opposition, we have to understand this. And I think this was part of the problem in the, in the body of Christ. We're not ready to overcome opposition. But it's been bred into us. It's been born into us. We were created from the very beginning 
to overcome opposition. Genesis chapter 1, when God first breathed life into man and woman, he said to them in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That word subdue means to conquer and to control. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every every living thing that moves on the earth. From the very beginning, he said, you're going to have to subdue, you're going to have to conquer, you're going to have to control, and you're going to have to have dominion, you're going to have to rule over and exercise authority over. This was before sin. We think of the Garden even we think of the Garden of Eden, and we just think about Adam and Eve just sitting around naked, just eating fruit and going, woo! He told them in the very beginning, I'm putting you on this earth, and I want you to subdue everything and have dominion over everything that does not fall under my leadership or my lordship. That's just what he said. So evidently, he was telling Adam and Eve, there are some things you will have to subdue. There's some things you will have to exercise authority, but it's the garden. Was there a serpent in the garden or was there not? What were they supposed to do to him? Subdue him and have dominion over him. Put them in a garden, garden with, the ser- with the serpent. What kind of God would do that? Put them in a garden with opposition. What kind of God would do that? A God who expects you to subdue and have dominion. The presence of opposition and difficulty is not always a sign of being out of the will of God. Sometimes we've thought, I'm going through all kinds of trouble. This is awful. God, where are you? He said, I'm I'm right here with you. Let's go. I'm right here. You Come on. Let's go with it. See, I don't have time to get it. That was a great story, but I'll talk about it some other time. Let me say this. Victory in the kingdom was never meant to be the result of the absence of adversity. We've got to get this in our hearts, believers, sons and daughters of God. Victory in the kingdom of God was never meant to be the result of the absence of adversity. I'm winning. Why? Because I have nothing going wrong in my life. That's participation trophy. How do you know you're winning? When you... Beat something. Hey, did you win? Yes, we all did, Dad. We did, nobody kept score. You didn't win. You played, but you didn't win. That's nothing against the other team. I'm just saying, when you win, even in the kingdom, it requires victory over something. And until we get that into our heart, we will not understand the concept of the kingdom that we can walk in victory and still have adversity at the same time. Was Jesus victorious in his life? Was he victorious in his assignment? Did he have any adversity? A little thing called the cross? The Bible says that he overcame. He says, death, where's your victory? And grave, where's your sting? He says that in Scripture, and it's, Jesus had to overcome them. He had to overcome them, and he still got victory. So let's, let's look at this. Oh, Jesus. So in Daniel... We saw there are four beasts, seven heads. Look, look, Revelation chapter 13. Let me go here. Having seven heads and ten horns. What are the seven heads? We know what a beast is a kingdom. If a beast is a king or a kingdom. So John is saying there's going to come this king, this kingdom in the last days. And this dude that comes up, and we know, realize, again, this is a kingdom, not an animal. There's coming a kingdom, a government rulership. It's going to have seven heads and ten horns. 
Seven heads. What do the seven heads represent? Seven heads represent kingdoms and empires. Seven. What are the seven? Seven heads represent kingdoms or countries that have come against Israel. And you said, Chad, are you just making that up? Nope. Let's use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Hurry. Turn faster. It's just a couple pages to your right. <laughs> Revelation 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. You want wisdom? You get it from God. The seven heads on this beast are seven mountains. Okay, seven mountains. What are seven mountains? Seven mountains are not literal mountains. Mountains in Scripture are always talking about kingdoms. Kingdoms on which the woman sits, or rulership, or government. There are also seven kings. Okay, so now we see the seven heads involve seven kings, or seven rulers over countries, governments, things along those lines. Five have fallen. One is. Now, what are these? What are these? Why I said there were the seven that come against Israel. John, the revelator, is writing the book of Revelation under the Roman Empire right here in history. And the Bible tells us that there are going to be seven heads or seven kings. Five have fallen, past tense. So now we can count. Here's where we are. One is, five have fallen, one is. We are right here in Rome. Five have fallen. One, two, three, four, five. These five are empires or governments or countries that conquered or occupied Israel. And it says five have, remember, Jerusalem-centric, Israel-centric, Middle Eastern-centric, rest of the world. Five have fallen. One is Rome. And it says, and then the next one is to come. The one has not yet come. That'd be the seventh for the seven heads. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. So the seventh country or empire that rises up and, and conquers Rome will only exist for a short time. And then he's going to fall but said that he is also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Going to perdition. Going to perdition. Does that sound familiar? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about the man of sin is revealed, the son of, son of perdition. About tripped and fell. So now we got Rome. Here we go. So the one that is, one that's not yet. This was the Ottoman Empire that conquered eastern Rome, Constantinople. History. Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, Muslim Empire will also, it was uh, defeated after World War and they broke it up and it will also be the eighth. So here's what I'm saying. The seven heads that it says here in Revelation chapter 13, seven heads, ten horns. Here's the seven heads. Ottoman Empire, Roman Empire, Greek Empire, Medo-Persia, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, all those, there's seven heads. But you said, Chad, it has ten horns. Yes, Egypt, one ruler. Assyria, one ruler. Babylon, one ruler. Medo-Persia, one ruler. Greek empire, broken up when Alexander the Greek died and was broken up into four different kingdoms. There's four. Rome had one. Ottoman Empire one. So we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's the ten. So why does this beast, this antichrist beast, antichrist kingdom, if you will, has seven heads and ten horns? It's telling me, this is my interpretation. If you've got a different one or a better one, I'd love to hear it. I'm just saying this is how I interpret it. That the antichrist kingdom is going to be a conglomeration of this region of the world, and it's going to be a, a resurgence of the Ottoman Empire or the Turkish Empire. This is what I believe. 
So now look at verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Leopard represents the Greek empire. And I could tell you why, but again, it takes some time. His feet are like the feet of the bear. Bear, Medo-Persian empire, had the ribs in his mouth. And then, uh, what's the next one? And his mouth, like the mouth of the lion. That's Babylon. The dragon gave him his power. Mm. So now, the Middle Eastern Antichrist, here's what I want to get. Look at this verse. Hang on a second. Had a tickle. Look at verse 2. The beast, this Antichrist kingdom, because people was asking me, Where, where's the Antichrist at and, and uh, what's the mark of the beast? We'll get to the mark of the beast. It's later in chapter 13. I don't know when we're going to get there. We're just going to get there. But I'm wanting us to understand what's going on big picture because I don't think the church grasps how big a deal this is. Because we've adopted the mindset of churchianity and we've lost the kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. Churchianity is I'll come and set and hear a sermon and go home and I'll see you next week. That's church. You got to kick church out of your life. Not attending church. I'm talking about the concept, the kingdom. Because look what it says. The dragon. Who's the dragon? The dragon in scripture is always talking about Satan himself. So talking about the Antichrist. Who's the Antichrist? This beast, this governmental agency that's going to rise up. And again, this is where they're going to say it's political. They're going to say, oh, you're just, you're just getting political. Jesus. Let me just try and read. The dragon gave him, the Antichrist kingdom. Yeah, yeah. Gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Satan himself is going to give to the Antichrist kingdom his power, his throne, and his authority. Let me, let, me, let me hit the throne first. What is the throne? He's going to give him his throne. What does that mean, Chad? He's going to give him his throne. Well, in, use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, he's talking to the angel in the church of Pergamos, and he says, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's going to give the Antichrist kingdom his throne, Right? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, did not the throne is. You see how I'm putting it together. It may not be it. Again, you may have a better interpretation of it. That's just, that's just how I see it. No, let's look at the other two. So you give him his throne, and this is the powerful part. Satan's going to give the Antichrist his power. His power. What's that mean? What's that mean? It's the Greek word dunamis. The Greek word dunamis, which means this. Miraculous power or force. Miraculous power or force. He's going to give him miraculous power. Ouch. That doesn't sound good. Then he's going to give him his authority. What does authority mean? The word authority is the Greek word exousia, and it means delegated influence, power or right to give orders, to make decisions, authority to rule, and jurisdiction. 
So hear me. Remember Daniel chapter seven or verse 17 of chapter 7? When he said, Daniel, these four, these four beasts are four kings that's going to be on the face of the earth. They're going to be dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. But, verse 18 came. You remember that? Look at <laughs> He's going to give the Antichrist his dunamis and his exousia. His power and his authority. His jurisdiction and his influence. We're like, oh no, we're doomed. The Antichrist is going to have Satan's power and his authority. What are we going to do? Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to read Luke 10, 19. This was Jesus talking. And he says, behold, I, Jesus, give you authority, exousia, to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the dunamis of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Have we got it yet? It's all right. Hang on. Antichrist is going to receive all the dunamis and exousia of Satan and strut around like a big banny rooster. <laughs> that was my best rooster. He's going to, he's going to <laughs> exalt himself. He's going to puff himself up. And he's going to do some powerful things. He's going to have authority to declare some things, to make some laws. He's going to have some jurisdiction. He's going to have the ability to do some stuff. Verse 17. But, behold, I give you exousia. No, no, no. Jesus is saying to you and to me, church, Satan is going to give the Antichrist his power, his authority. But, but, but I give you my authority and my power. Hey, hey, this is what he's given to us. This is what God is saying. It doesn't matter. Here's the question. Here's the question. Here's what I felt like God was asking me. A statement, then a question. Here's the statement. The Antichrist is going to, according to the Bible, he is going to operate in the power and the authority of Satan. There's going to be a governmental entity that is going to operate under the power and authority of Satan. That is a biblical fact. The question, will we operate under the power and the authority of our leader? The Antichrist will operate under the power and authority of his leader. The question is, will we? The question is not whether he has it or not. The question is, what do we have that's greater than what he has? 
Are we waiting that there's going to be no problems and all of the issues will go away? No, we know it's going to get tough, but we will operate into the exousia and dunamis of Jesus. We say, what are you going to do? It's time for the body of Christ, I believe, to be prepared. Be prepared. You've been given power and authority. That power and authority doesn't promise you that you won't have to give your life. That power and authority doesn't mean you're going to make very life-changing, altering decisions that may cost you a lot. You may have to do it. Jesus was victorious, and he hung naked on a cross for me. But tell me he wasn't victorious. He wasn't victorious by sidestepping the cross, dodging the whip. He said, give it to me. Give it to me. 39 diseases. I want to take a stripe for every single one of them. Come on, give me another one. Someday Chad's going to call out my name and apply the blood of Jesus to sickness, and I want to take it for him. He didn't sidestep adversity. He embraced it. The Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So I believe God is calling for the church to say, hey, there's a joy that's set before me called glory forever and ever and ever that I will go through what I need to go through right now. I'll go through it crying. I'll go through it hurting. I'll go through it in pain. It's going to happen. I'm not sidestepping that. I'm not sidestepping the fact that I'm going to have to make some tough choices. I'm I'm not sidestepping the fact that there's going to be some moments where I'm like, Jesus, that hurts. Ah, I don't want to do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There's going to be times. So what am I doing? I feel like the Lord has just put in my heart to encourage the body of Christ to remember your power. Remember the authority that Jesus died to give you. And you say that when Satan talks in your head and talks in your ears and starts blowing his little banny rooster talk to you, say, yeah, you got some power. You got some authority from your boss. But let me just tell you and remind you what my boss did to your boss. Let me tell you what my boss did. My boss said that he saw your boss fall like lightning from heaven. (laughs) Maybe you don't remember. Let me tell you a story. There was a man named Lucifer who thought he could be God. And he tried to draw himself up that he was God. And it says he was shook like lightning right out of heaven and fell into the depths of the earth. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to give, please visit us at theroads.church. To stay connected, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch our latest sermons.